Hello and welcome to Auric Digital's How to Make a Video Game Podcast. Here, you'll be entertained, informed and enlightened by the many goings on within the studio as we introduce you to our projects, our colleagues and give you a little insight into how we operate. Thanks for listening in. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode of Auric Digital's How to Make a Video Game Podcast. Uh, my name is Matthew. I'm joined by the amazing Jess. Jess, how's it going? Thank you, Matt. I'm doing really well today. I am excited to learn a little bit more about Warhammer 40k because I've come here, I joined Oric Digital without having ever played a single war game in my life, in my lucrative gaming career. I've not touched it. I've not touched a miniature before. I knew they existed. And here I am coming in as a complete noob and... I'm the odd one out. I'm definitely the odd one out. Well, let me settle um, some nerves or settle uh, an expectation here. Um, it's very much out of your control, Jess. And I'm sorry about this. <laughs> when you join Oroc, um, everyone's painting miniatures. And I, as, a, as a child, I used to do a little bit and then just kind of grew, grew away from it. Um, but since joining the studio, certainly full-time, um, it's it's this thing that you just cannot deny yourself. You, you know, it, it, the second you start painting a little bit, you and you start you start seeing that focus. You start seeing your uh, little miniature come to life, and you you pour so much kind of personality into that tiny little bit of plastic. Mm. Um, and then, of course, you learn a few techniques. It starts looking quite nice, mm. um, and you think, "Wow, this is quite cool." And that's just the painting side of things. Uh, we're big fans of Kill Team uh, in the studio, and we play a lot of that. Uh, amongst other games too. So what I'm saying is, Jess, uh, it's a lot of fun. And when you get yourself knee deep in just how much fun the 40k stuff can be, it's upon you. That time is coming. I'm sorry. It's okay. I accept my fate. I face it head on, you know, <laughs> I think. I mean, at worst, I learned a few more art skills, you know, it's like, I never took art GCSE. So maybe this is an opportunity for me to do an art GCSE in the form of painting miniatures and at best I get into a game that has spanned and our, our studio director Thomas is going to go into this a little slash a lot more later um <laughs> it's it spans 40 years it spans so much time and space and law and evolution as well we're on ninth edition now I believe that's a, that's a lot of additions. That's a lot of evolution over time. And I think to yeah. have an IP that's been able to be so consistently high quality, so consistently on brand, loyal to its fan base, loyal to the players who love and enjoy it, you know, because Warhammer 40k is not just a game to play. It's a hobby as well. It's a lifestyle for a lot of people because you've got some people who mm -hmm. will only ever paint the miniatures and only ever create the factions and they won't touch the gameplay itself. They, have, they would never do it because that's not what they're interested in. And that's fine. That's what makes Warhammer 40k so unique and so special is because it really fits and appeals to such a huge range of people and interests. Mm. Yeah. Um, when I first started getting into it as an adult or getting back into it as an adult, for such a long time, it felt like such a it felt like this thing that was just unavailable to me. Like I could never break through that barrier of, of getting into something like that. Didn't have the time. Um, small children just didn't have the time or anything like that. Um, 
but when when it was kind of entertaining, I started to entertain the idea of doing a bit of painting, just like baby steps, excuse the pun, just really, really small little bits. Just here's a miniature, have a go, do a thing. And what I've found about it, and again, I'm talking specifically about the painting because what you described then is exactly what I do. I, I don't play as many games as I, I would like, certainly. Um, plus also, I, I, I'm rubbish. I'm trash at the games. If you want, if you want a, a free win, you play me. Um, <laughs> but the painting side of that, I, I would hasten to add, it is like therapy. It's like mm. complete and utter focus where I can just focus on one tiny little thing and that's all. It just kind of, it, it nulls out any noise in my head at that time and that's all I'm doing in that precise moment in time. And I've not come across anything like that in my adult life. And so it's it's become this incredibly valuable thing that when I haven't done it for a while, I get a bit twitchy because I need to just have that fix of painting a mini. Mm. Um, but yeah, going back to what we're going to be talking about today, I'm excited this time because we've, we've featured, we have featured a lot of 40k stuff in previous seasons, uh, before your time on the pod. Um, and much of that went straight over my head, uh, as I, I tried to latch onto stuff as best I could, but now have now calling myself a minis painter, um, and building somewhat of a small army of Necrons at the minute. Um, I'm excited for this because there might be something I might understand this time. So I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of thinking, oh yeah, Thomas, yeah, you're dead right. Yeah, I remember that in the first edition or something. I'm not, I'm of course joking. But it's it's um, it, Thomas is, is best place for this because he's been um, pa- painting and playing for a long time. Um, he knows the, the additions, the changes from one to the next. He knows so much about this stuff. He is a real walking archive. Mm-hmm. So this is exciting. Um, as much as everything is on this podcast is, we cover a lot of ground in these seasons, these episodes, but this is uh, particularly sweet um, at the minute for where I'm at in my painting career. And I'm sure where you will be uh, as we head into 2022. It really, really well. So this is going to be a deep dive into the first edition of Warhammer 40,000. Um, why are we looking at that edition? Well, it's kind of a personal journey as well as, I think, a piece of important gaming history. Uh, I was inspired in this idea by um, a series of videos on Dungeons & Dragons done by a guy called Matthew Colville and also a series of videos on the 40k set game Necromunda by Arbiter Ian. And I really like the idea of kind of deep diving into a set of rules and see how they changed over time, see how they fitted into the historic period in which they were created. So what I want to do first off is is do a little bit of an introduction about myself and, you know, why this. So uh, I'm Dr. Thomas Rawlings and I'm the studio director at Auroch Digital. My doctorate is not in 40K, but that would be a very cool idea. Uh, but before before running Auroch, I worked as a game designer for many years and I, I still do bits of game design within the company. Um, and obviously, if you listen to this and you like what we're doing uh, and this general theme of what's going on here, then please do follow us on our various channels because we've got a lot of very cool stuff coming up. Um, and in fact, as we're recording this, I have for reference next to me my copy of first edition 40K. And this is actually my copy that I got age 13 in 1987 when it came out. Uh, and I've been a fan of the game ever since. Uh, and in fact, you know, for the last well, 33 years of my life, Warhammer 40,000 has been a part of my life. It's been more of a constant in my life than many other things in my life. Um, and if you'll indulge me just a little, you know, I have a kind of personal connection that goes beyond just being a fan of it. Um, if you open first edition, you'll notice that in the credits, as well as the author, Rick Priestley, 
Uh, a co-editor of the book is a guy called Jim Bambra, who was actually the, my boss at the second game development studio I ever worked at Pivotal Games. Uh, and so, in fact, we discussed Warhammer 40,000's rule set on my interview at Pivotal Games. Um, so for me, you know, there's a personal and there's a professional connection to why I'm, uh, I love Warhammer 40,000. Um, but yeah, what I want to do is get inside Warhammer 40,000, understand the rules, the ethos, the kind of general ideas, a little bit of how combat worked there. So let's start with um, the first thing on this. So Warhammer 40,000, it has a number of roots and inspirations and things like that that I think are worth a mention. Um, and a lot of people sort of say, oh, well, you know, this game copied this idea from here and this game copied that. And actually, this is where my, and I mentioned my PhD deliberately, is my PhD is around the evolution of technology. And so as part of that, I looked at a lot of work around how people understand the evolution. There's obviously the biological understanding of it, but there's a kind of human understanding where we use it in terms of the evolution of an idea, the evolution of a concept, the evolution of an invention. And in actual fact, building off the previous building blocks of things is actually the standard idea that humans generate stuff. It's so rare to find something that exists in a vacuum, that even if the creator or creators are not consciously aware of the stuff they're drawing from, it will be around in the culture that they're within. And so it's inevitable. Um, so I actually think understanding where things came from, I find it really fascinating. And I don't think in any way it invalidates or um, takes away from either the thing that was the inspiration or is the thing that was created due to the inspiration. Uh, and I think that's an important point because... Um, Warhammer 40k draws on a number of ideas and you know they, they reference it in the book they talk about a few of the things that they took inspiration from you know you can see it Aliens and Alien the film Dune um, the uh, there's, there's, there's a series of other science fiction books um, uh, such as Asimov's Foundation Empire and stuff like that, that that are referenced and you can see little germs of ideas that kind of how they, they go but I think the, the key thing is over the last 33 years of 40K, it's clear that it's basically become its own thing. Yes, it took ideas and inspirations from other things, as is normal, um, but it's clearly also become its own things, which is why I think it's important to kind of roll the clock back a little and look at the early days of something and see where it goes. So when you go back to early 40K, so, you know, pre-1987, um, um I think it's important to know Warhammer Fantasy Battle. So by the time Warhammer 40,000 comes out, Fantasy Battle is in its third edition. And this was also written by Rick Priestley, um, who you know was the main author of Warhammer 40,000, first edition. Uh, another guy called Brian Ansel. Uh, and he's important because he'd previously written uh, a game called Laserburn back in 1980. Uh, and he's also credited in 40K with additional material, but we'll come back to that. So Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay it, as well as Warhammer Fantasy Battle, there's Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, and that's the role-playing game set in the Warhammer universe. Um, and back in 1986, that was in first edition, an edition I, I have as well. Uh, I was a big fan of, still am. Um, and so at that point, the, the Warhammer setting itself is still evolving. The thing that we know as Warhammer now, um, you know, they were still sort of figuring out what that is. And to give a few examples of that, um, so, you know, the Warhammer fancy battle setting, they had this kind of renaissance setting. So, yes, swords and all the kind of fancy tropes that you expect within that. They also had um, basic firearms, muskets, cannons, elves, dwarves, goblins, halflings, orcs, all that kind of stuff that's classic fancy in, in you know, that era of, of Warhammer. Um, 
But I think where they started to get their own kind of interesting take on it is they, they obviously had magic and magic is quite classic in fantasy, but the magic becomes this kind of fundamental power that suffuses all parts of the world. So, you know, I've, I've gone to my copy of Warhammer uh, fantasy roleplay and pulled out a dis- uh, was it, uh, well pulled out a description of demons uh, and when they're talking about the alignment of demons uh, well in fact it's Warhammer fantasy battle um, not all demons are evil or malicious although they're all powerful creatures demons are part of every pantheon including those of good or kindly gods as well as blood curdling deities deities of chaos and evil demons can therefore be of any alignment so in that early history of warhammer they're still even figuring out what they want demons to be um and so if you look at the stat block for a lesser demon in warhammer fantasy battle it also basically gives you the stat block for angels as well as a lesser demon so you know demons are essentially a concept and whether they're good or ill is down to the you know the setting of the game that you as the player are putting together um and the stat blocks, I think, are notable in the history of what became Warhammer 40,000 because they have the kind of classic profile, move, weapon, skill, ballistic skill, strength, toughness. And we'll see all of those again in Warhammer 40,000. I think, again, for me, that was one of the reasons why it was so successful because, you know, I knew of Warhammer uh, Fantasy and I, I had a couple of friends who played it and we were around Warhammer Fantasy battle and so when warhammer 40,000 came out the fact that it used a lot of the same um rules bases obviously co-written by the same person um it made it really easy to adapt to that you know and it always was going to be the warhammer setting that that classic fantasy setting but in space and that was always a kind of really interesting take on it um so you know war war for 40k you can see that link back to the warhammer fantasy setting really clearly uh, in first edition in a way that over time they've kind of again adopted their own sort of take on it so you know it's got all of the fancy races were, are, are within there so the the you know you've got the dwarves and they were called the squats in first edition you've got the eldar and in first edition they're not the kind of craft world eldar that we have today they were basically uh they were either pirates or mercenaries um but obviously they're the elves um they've got the the key law ones like the slan um and they were in there and again they've got that link back to the warp gates and the, this kind of idea of the pervasive magic that, that exists everywhere um and as well as that we've got uh, you know uh, classic humans obviously um we've got orcs you know we've got goblins but called gretchlings in there they don't have skaven and they have a few other races that they just later drop like the famir or ogres or things like that but what it does share, so what Warhammer Fantasy Battle and Warhammer 40,000 really does share is this core game system of function of combat. So basically, if you know how to play Fantasy Battle, you pretty much know how to play 40k. Um, so the way that the combat works in turn phases by each side, the kind of the way the, 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 the rolling to hit, the rolling to wound, the rolling to save is basically the same sort of system. Um, and in fact, they're so close that in the early days of Warhammer 40,000, they'd issued two books called Realm of Chaos, uh, which is when they really started to define what we would understand um, by 40K and with this kind of chaos thing. Um, and each of those books basically had the stats for 40K and Fancy Battle in the same book. You know, they were interchangeable. They also did it with a couple of other ones, like the, there, was, there was a Siege book which gave the rules for siege warfare and it was the same book for fantasy battle and 40k they were that similar 
Uh, I'm going to jump back in history a little bit further to Laserburn. Uh, now, Laserburn is slightly different in that it was uh, 15 mil, whereas the kind of classic 40K was 25 mil figures. So, but they're skirmish rules, so again, they're not these kind of mass blocks of armies and Napoleonic era rules, which were fairly common in wargaming around those times. It had a bunch of other stuff that you can see as points of inspiration in 40K if you read through Laserburn, um, Powered Armor, Dreadnoughts. Um, but there's also areas that are really quite different. You know, they're not the same game. So they use a kind of skill-based system in Laserburn, which is much closer to an RPG. And again, that RPG wargaming influence, there's a kind of lot of crossover stuff of there, uh, which I mentioned Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay and the influence that's that took from Warhammer Fantasy Battle. But in turn, Warhammer Fantasy Battle is taking ideas from miniatures games um, themselves, you know, which were the kind of classic format of that. But obviously, well, not obviously, but if you know the history of Dungeons & Dragons, Dungeons & Dragons comes out of these um, miniatures wargaming to become role-playing. So these games kind of fold in and out of each other in terms of concepts and inspirations. So jumping back to... Uh, like I say, you know, the laser burn, as I mentioned, you know, it, it's, you can see a lot of the similar ideas of a skirmish game and you can see how they, they get, they get inspired, adapted, drawn, you know, mixed around. And, and what's interesting is Rick Priestley, who is the main author of first edition 40 K. Uh, and again, as I say, co-author of Warhammer fancy battle, he gave an interview and in that he mentions this 1970s game, uh, well, game book called um, Battle Practical Wargaming as a big inspiration from 40K. Now, that game is really both focused on World War One and World War II. Um, but again, what, what I noticed from that is, you know, one of the things is very limited impact of weapon ranges. So in first edition 40K, some weapons are really effective in close and they get less effective further away and some the opposite. But the idea is the distance away you are affects the stat block of the weapon, the damage it might do, the save and clone modifier, stuff like that. And that's kind of classic thing in first edition 40K. And, you know, that idea comes from, again, takes inspiration from this, this book, Battle Practical Wargaming, which, again, is not a massive surprise because, you know, the, the creators of 40K in those early days, Rick Priestley, you know, um, Jim Bamber and the other people who are around it, they would have been taking their ideas and inspirations from the stuff they played when they were younger. And the bulk of that would have been these kind of World War One, World War Two, Napoleonic set miniatures games, because that's basically what was around then. You know, they, they were a lot of the, the people creating 40K and those games around there like Laserburn were really a lot of people pioneering the idea of setting alternative settings, much in the same way Dungeons and Dragons the precursor to that is, is uh, you know, there's several games, again, that draw inspiration from it. It's one called Chainmail, and Chainmail is a medieval set um, miniatures combat game, um, which has this more skirmish thing. And that itself, then, the idea of setting that in uh, a fancy setting, like a Lord of the rings s setting, then gives them the idea to make something like Dungeons & Dragons. So anyway, all these various influences um, roll into Warhammer 40k, and, um, you know, uh, as, as a gamer around then, you know, I, I got very excited that they, they did this in White Dwarf 92. They did this one page teaser for the game with a logo and a picture of a Space Marine. And I remember thinking they look very cool, these Space Marine things. The next issue, White Dwarf 93, that was the launch issue. And obviously there's a huge amount of stuff pushing that. 
There's a big article on what 40K is. There's ads because White Dwarf is Games Workshop's own magazine. Um, there's ads for it. There's ads for the, the first couple of box sets, which were Space Orc Raiders, uh, and one called RT01, which is in the history of miniatures games, is kind of classic box set. And the RT stands for Rogue Trader 01, because the original title of Warhammer 40,000 was Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader, which I'll, I'll come to a little bit in there. Uh, and those those plastic space screens, which I, I got a box of and, and loved them, made them, made my own versions of it, kit bashed them. Uh, back then, you know, the original rules cost uh, 15 quid, which was a lot of money for I mean, it's a lot of money now for a book, but it was a lot of money back then. Um, but as I say, you know, that 15 quid I still have 33 years later. So as far as I'm concerned, it's every penny of that was well spent. So let's look a little bit at how Warhammer 40,000 really differs in that first edition from anyone who's played later editions or plays other sort of skirmish combat games might see. So the original game has a lot more of a role-playing game vibe. I mentioned that a little bit before, and that's part of the reason why I mentioned Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay as a bit of a context for it and, and how Dungeons & Dragons emerges out of wargaming, is those links between wargaming and RPG games back then were a lot more, were a lot clearer. Um, and so in the original 40k, it had a it had a GM, it had a games master. So the idea was, well, not that you've just got two players, which is, you know, the classic thing you do in playing it now. Back then you would have three players. One would be the games master, the other two would be the players. Uh, and in the original get book, there was a lot of monsters and scenery, like plants that could eat you and stuff like that. And again, things like Eldar mercenaries turning up at a battlefield. And then, you know, would one of the players manage to hide them and they hire them, sorry, and they join one side. So there, there was a lot of stuff around this more scenario-based role-playing game thing. And, of course, you can see that, you know, plenty of the more narrative gameplay stuff is around now. But the original idea of 40K was very much each mission was a story and it had somebody, the Games Master, telling that story. Um, the other one in the title, Rogue Traders. So, you know, again, if you look for the inspiration in Rogue Trader, um, I mentioned uh, Asimov's Foundation and Empire. And in the second book of that, you have this idea of people who um, conquer by trade, conquer by ideas rather than by military force. And, and I suspect they took some of the inspiration from that idea. Um, and again, there was this idea in Rogue Trader. So Rogue Traders within 40K are people commissioned by the Imperium to go off and trade on the edges of the empire. And through trade, essentially, explore and uncover new worlds which in theory could be absorbed into the imperium if they're human worlds or you know attacked and exterminated because it is a fascist empire um, if they're non-human worlds um, and so the idea was very much that on the fringes of the empire things are a lot more uncertain what you'll find it's a bit more kind of it's a bit more almost western as in uh, the western genre you know cowboys you know sort of genre um, and the idea was these these rogue traders would go into these worlds, wouldn't know what they'd find, and it would be you know that kind of intel and infiltration missions. Um, and so that that was a pretty key idea in the early game, and you could see why with the games master that works really well because you you've got somebody setting up these interesting missions, and it's almost like you wouldn't you know you could set up a game where you didn't quite know what you'd be facing when you landed on this planet to look at it um, uh, and, and met whatever was there. Um, 
there was also this idea in the early game that any of the worlds you find, and this is still the case in, in 40k, but, but you know, it's not used quite as much, was that any of the, the world could be anything. It could be a feudal world. It could be a world whose technology is not advanced beyond the Stone Age, like a Neolithic world. It could be a world with just modern day technology, because the idea was all these human worlds in the great, uh, there was a great expansion of the human race. They create, they settled all these worlds the humans did, and then there was an age of strife and uh, basically the, the warp storms and things like that, both back then and still now, cut off these human worlds. And so they develop at different rates. They might have been isolated for millennia, and then suddenly a change in the warp storm or a rogue trader arriving on the planet opens it up suddenly. And so the idea is, yeah, you could turn up on a planet and they're basically all got swords and shields. They've got no advanced weaponry at all. It's all long gone. The settlers uh, have kind of long gone from there. The great thing about that was it meant you could take your Warhammer um, fancy battle figures and repurpose them straight into a Warhammer 40k setting. You know, if you, and at the time, Games Workshop published stuff for the um, 2000 AD line. So they published Judge Dredd um, games and you could get Judge Dredd miniatures. You could use your Judge Dredd miniatures as kind of, uh, you know, police units in there. Uh, so the idea is there was a lot of mix and match in how the units would work. And that, that was, I think, quite deliberate in the thoughts of the original creators. They wanted to open it up and make it easy to do it. Uh, and back then, obviously, they were still developing their miniatures lines and the, the factions and everything like that. Um, so in terms of the unit rules, um, again, there's a lot of linkages back to Fancy Battle. So they had, um, there, there was the unit as a, as a function of, the coherence of the unit was a was a big deal in first edition 40k. So you had rules about unit coherence and morale, and it was important that your units, even though it was a skirmish game and they could be more loosely formed, it still mattered that they were units and then they worked at units. The combat sequence, as I mentioned before, was pretty much what you'd expect. So, you know, there's move, there's shooting, and in the shooting thing, there's roll to hit, roll to wound, roll to saves. And then units, then if they're in close combat, you resolve close combat. So that, that kind of classic Warhammer sequence of stuff, you know, that was in Fancy Battle, it's in 40k. In terms of the lore, at, at the point of first edition 40k, there's a lot of stuff that over the years we've got used to being this is 40k. That just what just hadn't been done yet. They hadn't established it. Um, so there were no Primarchs, so they weren't in there at all. They didn't really have the established Chaos Gods. They had this idea of the warp and that it was a a weird thing and the slan had you know um had had this this influence that um but they they hadn't really established the kind of chaos gods in that setting at first edition although it wasn't long after till they did um as i mentioned the eldar were just mercenaries or space pirates we, we had the empire but there was a whole bunch of uh factions that that just just weren't there you know they were in the setting but they hadn't yet appeared so necrons the dark eldar the tau uh, etc. Um, but what did it have in common with what we've got now? It was definitely gothic and grimdark. You know that 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 aesthetic, which is uniquely Warhammer uh, across all Warhammer. You know that was very much there. Um, they obviously had the Space Marines, and you know they've gone on to become the most iconic and popular. The the Adeptus are, uh, you know, the, the the kind of legions of the Empire. They're they're hugely iconic in there, and they were obviously set up in there. And in fact. You know, on the front cover of first edition 40k, we've got units in. I think it's Mark. There's a mix of Mark II and Mark III armor, uh, kind of in there. And obviously, we've, they've evolved in that into Primaris Marines that you have today. Um, 
but to me, yeah, that gives you, you know, if you play current Warhammer or even if you don't, that gives you a kind of really brief run through of what Warhammer 40,000 first edition is, what it had that was unique about it and, and what, what was interesting about it for me as a player back there and where it was drawing its ideas from, because obviously it would take that first edition 40k and we were up to, is it ninth edition now? So over the, over the next sort of three and a bit decades, they would evolve the setting, the rules, the units, the law, really quite dramatically. Uh, and I think that that evolution of the ideas across all those spheres for me is absolutely fascinating. And again, it, it's that longevity of, of the fascinating stuff they're continuing to do with this setting and this game that's kept people like me basically playing Warhammer games from, you know, well, more than 33 years ago, because I was playing, like I say, fancy role playing, fancy battle before that, um, you know, right up to the point now, and I really see myself stop playing it. So, yeah, a, a dive into Warhammer 40,000. Comprehensive, um, wow. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> what a dive. It's, it's, um, it's, it's kind of timeless. I mean, clearly, uh, Tom, you know uh, a little bit more about Warhammer and 40k than, than both Jess and I, but it's, it's, it strikes me as just a timeless beast. It's something that I, ca- I can't see it. I can't see the end of something like this. It's going to constantly adapt and it's going to constantly transcend generations each and every time. Mm. Um, I, I'm fascinated and thrilled to see where this might be in 50 years if I'm still around. Hopefully I am to, to see where the game <laughs> yeah. goes. Yeah, but same. it's staggering to think where, where it might end up. You know, mm. it's just crazy, crazy to think. Well, I, I think um, one of the things that I, I think makes it so successful, apart from the fact that law, lots of the stuff in the law they've evolved is very human stories, like about, you know, the Primarchs as kind of fallible heroes the, the idea of the kind of lost golden age that they, they were aiming for or had, the idea that actually things aren't quite what they seem. They're all, they're all very human stories we relate to. But in that original first edition 40K, they had this idea, which is still there now, which is it's kind of up to you. So they'll set, they'll set the framework. So in 40K first edition, it's like there's, there's a thousand Space Marine chapters. Um, and they didn't have all the stuff around the heresy and, the, you know, the the move from legions to chapters and stuff like that what just wasn't in for first edition 40k but they had this idea of like the space marine chapters up to you what you want with them so they define a few of them like the ultramarines and things like that and then they'd leave tons of them for you to come up with and i think that's what i liked about it so much is like the stuff you can hook into if you want to see what they're doing with it but equally if you just want to create your own corner of the galaxy with your own kind of setting you know your own take on what they're doing it completely fits within the law because the whole idea was yeah there's vast regions of space that are unexplored and we just don't know what's there and so if you want to create a, a setting where there's a, a weird human faction or an odd space marines chapter or anything like that basically the law is not saying you can't have it the the law is saying there's space within there to do your thing mm. that's something i was kind of going to remark upon as well is the absolute artistry of the design for Warhammer 40k, especially in, in the earlier editions, is that they managed to set up the game and this universe and this lore to be in a way that allowed for the evolution in whatever direction it was going to take place. Because they, like you said, they were they were creating these factions, like they had the Space Marines, but they were like, 
we have an idea of what might happen and we also want to keep this open for everyone else to get involved and to come up with their own ideas for how to expand their universes but we don't know where we want to take our chapters yet so how do we set this up in a way that is still still has depth to a story and to a universe that players can enjoy but also keep it open enough for us to take new directions if and when we want to and I think there's a real artistry to that design to give themselves that flexibility yeah definitely and and they give that flexibility to the players um, and, and that's again that's one of the things that's kept me interested all interested and playing all these years we used to joke um in previous seasons uh, about this valve um that Thomas has on the back of his head um, and it's been a while since we mentioned this valve. Mm. And what this valve does is you, when you twist it, like a little bit of steam comes out, excuse the pun, steam and valve. It wasn't <laughs> intentional, but I'll take that. Um, you twist it and steam comes out. And at that point you've released some of the, some of the Intel just starts spilling out. Then you release a little bit more mm. and then it starts spilling out even more. And then you really kind of crank it to the right. And you, you release all that archival knowledge and Thomas just goes some. And that that fountain of knowledge within him just starts pouring all over the place, and it's it's never ever ever gets old hearing Thomas talk about this kind of stuff because clearly, I mean, he's a fan first. He's a fan, and you really get that passion, and you really kind of get that understanding that this means so much to him. It means so much to so many people. Mm. You know, we were just saying off air about you know how much some people can spend sometimes on on the miniatures, the paints, the, the, the sets, the, the, the props, all the other bits that you can get as part of a, part of a, a war scene, a scenario playset, um, the novels, the video games, the, the short films that are available now as part of this law, the feature films, so much stuff, so much stuff in the back end of, of all this, uh, of, of the Warhammer law now. Lawhammer, Lawhammer. Lawhammer. Oh it really is Lawhammer. Full of puns today on this uh, outro. Um, but what was that like for you, Jess, as, as a noob to sort of um, miniatures? Like, where are you at? Like, what, what's your kind of take on, on, on this beast, this behemoth that is War, Warhammer 40k? I think my take is that it's, I mean, it's the way that Thomas was describing the journey from first edition to third edition and everything in between. I think it was so enrapturing to hear someone speak with that amount of love and that amount of passion and enthusiasm and knowledge and intrigue and curiosity and you know all these other lovely lovely adjectives that I could attach to this like he is so enthusiastic about it and that really prevails through and that has rubbed off on me definitely as well like I feel like I've been motivated in some way to go here is someone in my life you know Thomas is our studio director he's also my line manager so I'm like, this is a way for me to relate to a colleague here where I can go and actually look at some miniatures and look into some background. I think that's what I'm taking away from it is that not mm. only Thomas, but so many other people in the studio as well. Um, even yourself, like you, you started painting, getting back into painting miniatures and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should do that too. Maybe this is, you know, these are people that I really respect and like, and maybe this is something that I can enjoy as well. So I think my next step is to take the plunge and walk into my local um, Warhammer store and say, can I please purchase a, I don't know, maybe the Elite starter pack or something, you know, get a few miniatures, get 
the basic rule set and have a little play around. Maybe that's what I'll do. Yeah, I, I think um, there's there's a great place to start now. I think I think of course if if the door was closed on on newbies wanting to get involved, then the whole thing would just die. You'd be you'd be strangling the the idea and it would eventually just die off. So you need that conveyor belt, that flow of new people, new enthusiasts, you know. Mm. Um, and speaking from experience, like I've never, uh, I've never had a bad experience um, with anyone, certainly in the store. I've, I've gone in there quite plainly sometimes said, look, this is new to me. Um, I need you to guide me around the shop here because this is what I want from it. Um, this is the sort of thing I'm interested in. And then they'll just start advising and start chatting mm. to you about stuff. And again, much like Thomas, it's very difficult to, to not absorb some of that um, that enthusiasm. Clearly they're fans. You wouldn't work in a place like that in one of the stores if you weren't a fan. Mm. Um, I would love to know what the uh, what the kind of induction process is like, you know, for, for something like that. Um, I'd love to be a fly on the wall there. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's um, one of the best things about it, and this is coming from experience too, is that it, 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 even at this point, it still feels a bit niche, I guess. Mm. I guess it kind of feels a bit niche. But it's not. It really isn't. Because when you start painting, it's about um, you you pour so much of your own um, personality into what you're doing. And there's no right or wrong way of doing something. I'm, I'm sure I'm probably going to maybe upset some hardcore fans by saying that. But my gosh, you should see my Necrons because I'm breaking all sorts of rules with those. <laughs> cutting their arms off and kit bashing them and sticking other weapons on their you know, severed hands and stuff. Mm. And and that's what I wanted because I knew for me, I was new to it and it wasn't going to be a pretty experience. So I needed a faction that I could do that with, that I could yeah. make a mistake, m- do it twice, call it, call it Necron Jazz. Like that's the, <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. that's the name of my faction and the Necron, the Jazz Necron faction, I don't know. Yeah. But it allows me to do that. It's allowing me to learn and it's, you know, it's a, uh, it's it's fun in the process too, and also it is therapy because it is just all about that focus and just you know, nulling out the fuzz. Mm. But um, I'm excited for you, Jess. I'm excited for you to pick up a faction, find a faction that kind of works for you, and then start thinking about a color scheme and yeah. who this person is, and who that is, and who this captain is. It's really fun, really fun. Yes, I'm I'm really excited to dig to dig in. I'm thinking maybe Tyranids, maybe Eldar. I'm not sure yet. I'll, I'll have a think. Um. <laughs> well, as I say, I'm excited for you. Um, but my gosh, another another rammed episode full of uh, full of intel there. So I hope everyone's enjoyed that. Um, we've had a, an absolute blast putting this season together. It's been so much fun, um, and this one is 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 telling of that. We're all just fans of of stuff. At the end of the day, we're all just massive nerds. We are. Um, so it's great to have everybody involved and, and, and enjoying the podcast so Jess once again thank you so much for today absolute absolute stellar stellar performance <laughs> everything that you said <laughs> if we can call it a performance I don't know but um, thank you so much and uh, we'll see you in the next one thank you Matt thank you in the fast paced realm of the games industry the best way to keep up to date with everything happening at Oroch Digital is to follow us on social media you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, using the handle at Oroch Digital. And we're on LinkedIn too, as Oroch-Digital-Limited. We also encourage you to sign up to our mailing list to receive regular newsletters that go into more detail about our projects and to join our community Discord, who are the first to hear our updates. You can subscribe to the mailing list and join the Discord on our website, orochdigital.com. 
And whilst you're on the website, be sure to check out our recruitment page under orocdigital.com forward slash jobs, where we post all employment opportunities. Links to all these socials and more are in the episode description. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in the next one.